Hello, Distilling Theology listeners. Blake here, and I just wanted to apologize for our uh, unintentional extended hiatus there. We are back, and today's episode number 78, and it marks two years of Distilling Theology. We're so grateful to all of you that have listened along with us, that have joined our Facebook discussion group, uh, and especially to those on Patreon who help make the podcast possible. Just for a little bit of background, um, I had originally intended this episode to drop ahead of a several-week hiatus, which turned into several months thanks to work and wedding and a whole bunch of other things, but we're back now, and uh, we have a couple of other episodes already recorded, which have been up on Patreon for a little while now, so those will be coming out soon, and then more content as we go. Thank you again for listening. We hope you guys enjoy this episode, although it did have some technical difficulties. Justin's internet was cutting in and out due to a storm, so that'll be interesting uh, as we jump into the discussion of baptism. Now, on with the show. You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 78 of Distilling Theology. I'm your host, Blake Courtright, joined, as always, by Justin Van Riper at the Bad Baptist Bear. What's going on, bro? Well, I'm here with you. Excited? Again, to partake in the discussion of theology and the sipping of distilled spirits as we do. It's become a, we uh, a weekly tradition, you know. It's like, a, it's like a time set apart for you and I to be bros. And <laughs> This is getting so weird on multiple levels. I was like, is he, is he trying to make a heretical comment about sacraments or is he making a weird comment about dating? Like, I'm just confused. <laughs> Uh, no, that was, that this was is, beautiful. No, this is, for, this uh, is how we get our bro dates in. Keeping T weird, you know? That's, this is, that's this is how we get our bro dates in, you know? You know, we're going to have a little bromance, you know? Anyways, Justin, what's in your glass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I'm excited. Good. This is Capoletti Vino Aperitivo, uh, a wine-based version of the gentian-infused red bitter category, such as Capoletti Aperitivo is also an aromatized wine. Ooh, it smells indeed. delicious. I'm I'm deeply excited to try this. Is, we chilled it beforehand. We did. According to their website, uh, this particular beverage is known to the locals just as Speciliano and maybe the oldest style of the classic red bitter still in production. They also have a nice little dig here at Campari. Unlike its larger commercial rivals, Capoletti is less sweet. It has a wonderful drying finish. Uh, this is bottled at 17% alcohol by volume. And it is natural color using the traditional carmine red dye. Again, unlike Campari, that uses a synthetic dye to achieve that unnatural red color. Also, a fun fact from their website, because it's a wine-based bitter liqueur, it is legal for all beer and wine licenses. So someone doesn't need a liquor license to carry this uh, in their establishment or to sell it for that matter. So that's good news. Justin, what do you smell? Well, it's quite fruity. Checks out. <laughs> Checks out. I don't know. It's not overwhelmingly sweet. No, it's it's not. It's also not as like aggressive as the Campari smell in my book. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Also, in case anyone, in case it wasn't clear, Capoletti is my preferred go-to in place of Campari. It's what we used to use at the Speakeasy bar I worked at, and. I also like it because it's usually about half the price of Campari where I am. So natural coloration, traditional recipe, I think better flavor personally, half the price, hard to beat. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's like a wine. You know, you got some, some sort of vineyard action going on. There, it, there's an earthy <laughs> uh, quality to it, yeah. which makes sense with the gentian root, that it has that kind of earthy, slightly bitter, aromatic quality. Yep. And then you have a little bit of grapefruit rind like Campari. Um, yeah, man, super good. I'm excited to sip it and get into tonight's uh, slightly embittering topic as we uh, 
aromatize our senses with uh, controversy. <laughs> All right, on that note, cheers. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I see why you choose this. Dude, this is the way. Mm-hmm. There's just oh, no man, contest. <laughs> it's, you know what it is? It's so much more natural tasting than Campari. Yep. Because of the wine base. Yep. And yep. it's just, it's rich fruit forward. There's some, some of that grapefruit comes through. It is very dry, like a, like a good dry red wine. Um, but it has some nice like cinnamon and clove spices in there along with the fruit. I think a little bit of cherry as well. I don't know. What are you getting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say definitely some sort of cherry or even some sort of black raspberry, um, but not overwhelming. Um, definitely the grapefruit and the bitterness there um, as it sort of sits and dries out. But over, I mean, overall, very, very, very mellow um, yeah. and just easy to sip. I mean, I, I would happily you, sip a glass yeah. of this any night. If you've had sweet vermouth, a good sweet vermouth, this is mm. going to be in a similar kind of category in that it's a yeah. it's a red wine that's been aromatized with bittering agents and fruit. It's just a different uh, it's a different way of doing it than vermouth. It's mm-hmm. a different emphasis, but it's a similar to like a really good clean sweet vermouth. This is kind of a similar family, um, and I love it for like this makes this and the. Um, Koki Vermouth Amaro make some of the best cocktails I've ever had. Or we we tried Barolo Quinato a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, or months ago now on the podcast. I use that, this, and Ardbeg 10. Incredible drink. Really mm. phenomenal uh, riff on a Negroni. So anyways, yeah, man. That I'm a big good. fan. Uh, like I said, it's between like 15 and 18 bucks a bottle where I am. That's so um, cheap. It's hard to find. But yeah, compared to Campari, that's like 32 bucks a bottle. And you oh, see yeah. the artificial dye. And to me, tastes kind of, by comparison, tastes kind of candied. And you, you can taste the flavor is not as clean and natural. I don't really know. Like, I don't really have the, the vocabulary to articulate that beyond that. But yeah, it's just so good. I hear you. Anyway. Yeah, no. Um, now that we've sufficiently uh, submerged our taste buds. Wow. With a sprinkling let's, of uh, bitter liqueur. Let's uh, <laughs> let Got us uh, dunk into some prayer. Wow! <laughs> oh man, uh, guys, if you tonight. have <laughs> all the way in, <laughs> fully submerged. Two hours later, guys, if you have the Valley of Vision, please turn to page two sixty two with us. Uh, we again, we highly recommend this collection of Puritan prayers every time. It's so good. Page 262, Act of Approach. Benign Lord, I praise thee continually for permission to approach thy throne of grace and to spread my wants and desires before thee. I am not worthy of thy blessings and mercies, for I am far gone from original righteousness. My depraved nature reveals itself in disobedience and rebellion. My early days discovered in me discontent, pride, envy, revenge. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor the multitude to multiply transgressions of later years, my failure to improve time and talents, my abuse of mercies and means, my wasted Sabbaths, my perverted seasons of grace, my long neglect of thy great salvation, my disregard for the friend of sinners. While I confess my guilt, help me to feel it deeply with self-abhorrence and self-despair. Yet, to remember thee, there is hope in thee and to see the Lamb that takes away sin. Through him may I return to thee, listen to thee, trust in thee, delight in thy law, obey thee, be upheld by thee. Preserve my understanding from error, my affections from love of idols, my lips from speaking guile, my conduct from stain of vice, my character from appearance of evil, that I may be harmless, blameless, rebukeless, exemplary, useful, light-giving, prudent, zealous for thy glory and the good of my fellow man. Amen. Amen. Thanks for reading and opening us up in yet another amazing prayer from the Valley of Vision. This is the way. This is the way. 
It's so good. And speaking of the way, tonight we're going to be going the way of every reform podcast, which is to inevitably <laughs> go onto a, a collision course with the topic of baptism in reformed circles. It is a controversial topic. It's a spicy topic. It's one that we, for the most part, have kind of kept to the sideline until now. Now we're, Indeed. we're jumping in. We're sprinkling our podcast with uh, some discussion of baptism. <laughs> and don't worry, for those of you guys that are chomping at the bit to see us go at it and, and hash it out over uh, covenant pedo-baptism and uh, 69 federal credo-baptism, we're going to do that in separate episodes, one dedicated to each. Uh, and just as a recap, if you really want to go back, uh, which I would encourage, go check out episodes 39 and 40, where we speak with Sam Renahan about 1689 federalism and the covenant theology that underpins the London Baptist Confession of Faith and their Creative Baptist view, and episode 40 with Todd Prude and Carl Truman, where we talk about Presbyterian covenant theology that underpins the Westminster Standards and our view of pedobaptism. So those are really important coming into this discussion tonight. We're going to do kind of a flyover of some of the major views, and if we don't talk about your view, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm trying not to sorry. Cover, yeah, you know, trying to cover our bases. Someone asked how, uh, well, well, we'll do some listener questions in a second. Uh, but Justin, real quick, what is baptism? So if this is someone's first time listening to Distilling Theology, and maybe they've never heard of baptism or this and that, uh, just what is it? What is the word? Yeah, um, well, baptism uh, is an ordinance or a sacrament, depending on your persuasion. Uh, but really, we can use both terms um, realistically if we're if we're just not being bitter internet keyboard warriors. Um, uh, it, it's it's uh, one of the means of grace instituted by God. It is one of the ordinances that one of the only two, by the way, uh, ordinances uh, instituted by God: the Lord's Supper and baptism. Um, it is a a means of grace that God has given to His people. Um, and it is effectual. <laughs> it has benefits for the believer, those who are in the covenant of grace. And so what we want to do is we want to kind of go through some of the different views of baptism, right? Um, including, including, uh, our, our, our papist friends, <laughs> um, you know, because it's important, uh, historically, you know, there, there's a separation there from, from whence we came. So yes. we want to go through that. We want to kind of distinguish between, um, the, the sort of several different views of baptism, uh, depending on your, your covenant persuasion. Um, so yeah. Or yeah, lack thereof. One of the two ordinances. Yeah, or lack thereof. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, one other side note there, we've got, we've got pedo-baptists, mm-hmm. and in this discussion, that's the Roman Catholics, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and the Dutch, and there's others, but that's just, you know, high level here. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the Creative Baptists, which obviously you're 1689 Reformed Baptists, uh, but also like the SBC, Evangelicals, Dispensationalists. There's some other weird stuff out there. Justin and I were painfully reading through a blog post about something that just, I'm not going to repeat because I don't want to drive traffic <laughs> over there, but it was mm-hmm, bad. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was rough. Even Justin was cringing. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. Speaking of brutal... Yeah. I I had to read it before the show, so you you could read this first one here. What are the, okay. the the first of the different views on Baptist? So we're going to start with our 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 dear uh, friends, if you want to call them that, our dear friends in Rome. Uh, what does the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Papist Church, believe about baptism? Now, uh, for those who are sort of in the evangelifish world, who who don't necessarily know a lot about Reformed views of baptism. Uh, unfortunately, uh, oftentimes I, I've had my Presbyterian friends lumped in with the Catholics because of uh, the issue of infant baptism. Um, and I've oftentimes found myself um, defending the pedo-baptist view of infant baptism from a Presbyterian or Dutch point of view and distinguishing that from the Catholic point of view insofar as I don't want my brothers uh, from the pedo-baptist community to be misrepresented. Uh, I'm, I'm still uh, a, a seeker of truth. I want the truth to be known. Um, and while I may disagree with the Beto-Baptist view, I also don't want them to be misrepresented. It's the same if I were going to go debate a Mormon, for example. I wouldn't want to misrepresent their views. Um, I, I don't appreciate it when people misrepresent my brother's views. Um, and therefore, I don't want to misrepresent the Catholics either. So we're pulling this right from the Roman Catholic Catechism. Um 
so here we go. <laughs> uh, they would sip. say, yeah, <laughs> give me a second. All right. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Because apparently there's many. There's seven for them. I was wondering what that sound was. It just pouring rain. I thought um, you were going to say it was the sound of heresy. <laughs> the sound of heresy. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration. You heard that right. Through water in the word. So, baptism. <laughs> Papists believe in what we like to call baptismal regeneration. Um, like, if you want to kind of expand on what that means, by all means, please do. <laughs> uh, unlike an ordinary means of grace, which views these things as these sacraments or ordinances from a Baptist perspective as means to uh, ordinarily, by the, the preached word, baptism and Lord's Supper, God gives grace in the life of the believer and produces fruit. However, we don't claim that when you're baptized, you're regenerate, de facto, immediately. Whether you're Credo-Baptist 1689 or Baptist Dutch Reformed uh, Presbyterian, because we recognize, as Presbyterians, I recognize like, hey, those infants, yeah, they probably haven't made a credible profession of faith at, you know, eight days old or however old they are, what? and they aren't living a life of repentance and, you know, showing the fruit of regeneration. But I believe that they're within the covenant. We'll get to this when we talk on paid baptism um, in the covenant community and baptism is a sign of that community in a, in a Presbyterian context. So we administer, but what we're not saying, what Presbyterians are not saying is that I baptize my kid. They're, they're saved. That's it. I'm just going to kick back and not do anything. Like it, it's the exact opposite, actually. <laughs> um, baptismal regeneration it takes different forms, and so I don't want to lump everybody in unfairly, but the Catholic Catechism is probably the more extreme version, where it outright states, mm -hmm. we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. And so what happens in Catholic theology is that, as I understand it, is that you, you're born into the state, you're baptized and cleaned, and, you're, and then you're, spot, like, you're sinless. And then as you add sins up, you must like, work them off by good mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. Of penance, you know, by doing penance, by confessing to a priest, um, indulgences. Wait, what? <laughs> right, and and these things add up into yeah. uh, the statement where the Council of Trent, their anathema against justification by faith alone, is still on the books. So, to those who are calling for ecumenism with Roman Catholics, okay, let's wait for them to recant Trent and embrace justification by faith alone, and then we can talk about that. Right. And I'm speaking, Amen. you know, ecumenically, church-wide. I'm not talking about individual friendships with people. I have plenty of friends that are Catholics and atheists and Muslim. Like, that isn't the issue here. And don't hear me wrong, but I'm talking about ecumenism between churches and saying that we all worship the same God and we have the same gospel because we don't. Justification, Amen. Luther called it the article on which the gospel stands or falls, or the church, the article on which the church stands or falls is justification by faith alone. So, so it's kind of a big deal. But it's kind of a big deal. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of Luther, this is from uh, the Lutheran Catechism, as I could find it online. Um, just says, uh, Justin, I'll let you read it, I guess. Sorry. Yeah. So from Lutheran Catechism, uh, it, baptism, works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. So that's a thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, I, I know very little about yeah. the Lutheran perspective. <laughs> yeah, I don't know as much, so I'm just pulling stuff off of their official website, right? Mm -hmm. So this is from the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, just because when I searched for Lutheran stuff, this came up. The short version is Lutherans believe the Bible teaches that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, but baptism is a miraculous means of grace. Now, notice the distinction there. They use the phrase miraculous means of grace. The Reformed That's use the phrase ordinary means of grace. It is interesting. 
uh, through which God creates and or strengthens the gift of faith in a person's heart. Um, the Bible uses, uh, the terms the Bible uses to talk about the beginning of faith include conversion and regeneration. And although we do not claim to fully understand how this happens, this is Lutheran website here, Lutheran Synod. We believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of the infant. We believe that because the Bible says infants can believe and that the new birth happens in baptism, um, the infant's faith cannot yet, of course, be verbally expressed or articulated as a child, yet it is real and present all the same. The faith of the infant, like faith of adults, needs to be fed and nurtured by God's word. So that is very different from mm. the Dutch Reformed and the Presbyterian view of paedobaptism. And I just want to put that out That's there. That's interesting. So in a real sense, they would they, the necessary consequence of that must be as, if, as a child grows older, if they do walk away from the faith, quote-unquote, uh, they, they really see that as like a true apostasy. Um, yeah, for sure. Which, I mean, yeah. so do Presbyterians, but in a different sure. sense, we... sure. To my knowledge, I have yet to meet a Presbyterian who holds that kind of view. And that's a distinction. Now, again, we don't want to bunch the Lutherans in with the Roman Catholics no. because what the Lutherans aren't saying is that you're, you're, you are Justified. free from <laughs> sin and reborn as a son of God. Right. They're saying God is putting faith into the heart and that faith needs to be fed and grown to maturity, which is very different from what the Catholics are saying and also very different from what the Presbyterians are saying. But since I just talked for a while, why don't you give us the 1689 position? And then I'll jump back up to the Westminster. Yeah. Um, so for the 1689, uh, I'm just going to pull from the, the confession, obviously. Um, baptism, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of, fellow, of his fellowship with him and in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins and giving up to God through Jesus Christ to live and to walk in newness of life. Now. Admittedly, there's there's uh, not as much there as there is in the Westminster, um, which is why it's helpful to look at like Keech's Catechism, for example. Um, sure. Oftentimes, at least in modern Baptist circles, um, the view of baptism is more of a memorialist view that it's simply symbolic or that it's simply a memorial. But if you go uh, look at Keech's Catechism, for example, um, it makes it very clear that baptism. Uh, that the view that we we hold of baptism historically as particular Baptists is indeed a reformed view. Um, and we talk, uh, he talks about, uh, so he says this, obviously some reformed Baptists prefer not to use the term sacrament due to the negative historical connotations, looking at papists and all. Um, however, Baptists fully, fully affirm a reformed view of the sacraments as a means of grace. So to distinguish from your modern Baptists, historical particular Baptists or 16 Federalists or however you want to call us, um, definitely view this as an actual means of grace. Um, and so he continues, obviously, with some questions. You know, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? He talks about the outward, ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, uh, the word, baptism, Lord's Supper, and prayer. And then he distinguishes why baptism and Lord's Supper are uh, different. He talks about how they are an effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that administers them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Spirit in them that by faith receive them. Um, so similarly, Blake, Blake and I would both affirm that Baptism as an ordinance or a sacrament is indeed an effectual means of grace, and it actually works in the hearts of the elect uh, as they receive uh, the benefits of the ordinance, um, where that's that's grossly different from that of the memorialist or the, the uh, symbolic view. I grew up in a Wesleyan church, and it was merely symbolic. It was, it was simply a, just a, a, well, similar, I mean, we have the... <laughs> We have the SBC version here, hey. which, yikes, uh, it says, uh, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith and in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, that the believer's death to sin and burial, burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life. It's a testimony to his faith and final resurrection for the dead. So what they're, major, what they're lacking here majorly is that it's an actual effectual, effectual means of grace in the heart and in, in the life of the believer, um, that it has no bearing on salvation whatsoever, uh, that there's nothing in here about our sanctification or our, our uh, presence with Christ in, in, those, in those things. And so there's some major um, issues with that. And that's why uh, 
I think Methodists and Wesleyans end up with weird things like baby dedications and other things that are not anywhere commanded in Scripture, um, and yet they, they're trying to figure out a way to deal with covenants without actually participating in the actual covenantal uh, ordinances. <laughs> so, so yeah, historically, Baptists do believe— Careful, careful Justin, you're starting to sound like a paedo-Baptist there. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we haven't gotten to the covenants yet. <laughs> um, but historically, we, we fully affirm a Reformed uh, uh, view of the means um, provided by baptism. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I think there's a lot of lack— uh, in the in the modern discussion about about this, and it's a place where we're we are even closer theologically than um, than many might realize. Well, I was going to say when when I get to the Westminster here, yeah. I would argue that you and I, of everything on this page, that and again, this is a sprinkle. You know, we, we didn't get Anglicans, we didn't get like full blown dispensationalists, we didn't get Methodist. Like, I didn't go ham with baptism views here. We could do that another episode if people want it, but. I would say I feel more akin to 1689 federalism mm -hmm. than I do to Lutheranism mm -hmm. when it comes to baptism, even though Lutherans also baptize children. But because of our different theology, as far as what we mean by baptism, I think there's more similarity sure. between the Westminster and the 1689, which makes sense. And likewise, I feel like you're closer over to me, even though you're a creative Baptist, I'm a Pedo Baptist, than um, you are to the SBC or the yeah. memorialist views. Yeah. I could be wrong on that, but that's my no. That's my I, take. I would agree with that. We're we're definitely. I mean, we're like ninety nine percent there. Uh, really, ultimately, what it comes down to is what we believe about who's in the covenant community. I mean, essentially, we believe the same thing about baptism. It's just a matter of whom to whom it's applied. Um, that's really the only the only real difference there. And then, of course, the 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 means uh -oh. by which it's applied. Hello, darkness, oh no! Can you still hear me? No. Uh, Justin's going to try and reset here. His internet is being a little bit uh, unfortunate. So anyways, while Justin's gone, I could correct you guys on the, the accurate view of baptism and provide some resources for you. First and foremost, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism, the Belgic Confession of Faith as well. Uh, and then you can also read... Um, this book, Todd Pruitt recommended Infant Baptism in the Silence of the New Testament by Brian Holstrom and uh, John Fesco's book, Word, Water, and Spirit, Reformed Perspective on Baptism. John Fesco is ordained in the OPC, so you know where he's coming from. But uh, Justin said there's a big storm where he is, and his internet is terrible. He's trying to reconnect. So I will stall uh, by reading a passage from Fesco's book. <laughs> In one sense, ultimately, the whole debate over the question of infant baptism rests on the administrative ground of the right. Baptists contend that a profession of faith is the administrative ground for baptism. Only those who make a profession of faith receive the right. They base this argument on what they see in the New Testament narratives that recount the baptisms of converts to the Christian faith. However, this argument rests on only half of the canon and fails, once again, to account for the doctrine of the covenant. So that's... Fesco's words, not mine. Anyways, that's page 356, the bottom of page 356 um, from Fesco's book. So I would encourage you to check it out if you are interested in learning more about this topic and you want to dive deep, which if you're on Patreon, if you're listening to DT, I assume you want to dive deep. And if you're listening to us on Patreon, I assume you're more of a nerd maybe than, than normal. But yeah, Word, Water, Spirit, John Fesco, A Reformed Perspective on Baptism. Dun, dun, dun. Now we wait. For Justin to come back. I was going to go into the Westminster. He's just trying to stop me from talking about pedo-baptism, clearly. But no, I think this is interesting. Like that Justin was alluding to the memorialist view, which is Zwinglian. And it's not, uh, Mark talked about it last week with the Lord's Supper. It's not entirely fair to categorize Zwingli that way. It's just an easy way to, to talk about it. But um, in the Reformed tradition, particularly when we get to Dutch Reformed and Presbyterian, there's a particular view of baptism, which I think I have come to the conclusion that it makes the most sense through much study and prayer and reflection. I don't know that everybody who's going to... Oh, Justin's back. Part two, part two, recording part two. 
Baptists contend that the profession of faith is necessary. This guy. Oh, hi. <laughs> the frozen chosen dude. I was dying. <laughs> got him. Sorry, your internet's so bad. Yeah, I got a, I got a, ter- well, I got a terrible storm here. Yeah. And, uh, and on top of that, I'm on the opposite side of the house as my router, and I don't have any extenders at the moment. Now, normally it's fine, but uh, this extender, terrible bro. weather is really bad. Messing with it. Listen, bro, I'm just going to get a new house. How about that? That seems like an outside. escalation of the problem. That's like, I don't like the way that this church does the the refreshments afterwards. I'm going to find a new church. <laughs> that's true. I love my house. Long story short, uh, that's why Pedro Baptists are wrong. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you a special announcement from the Westminster Standards. Checkmate, Peter Baptists. Are you sure about that? <laughs> ah, but you forgot my reverse Uno card. <laughs> I really need to get one of those. Dude, same. I need to find an Uno deck. Dude, same. Just for that. <laughs> I, I would literally keep it in my wallet just for moments like these. I'll do that, and then I'll learn how to do ma- like the parlor magic tricks just for that, so I can like <gasps> pagan you know, crazy. I can move my hand around in a way that's sleight of hand. Wild. Um, we were talking about the difference between 1689 Federalist Creative Baptism and particularly the SBC, but also some of the other memorialist views. So I guess I'll prompt you with a question yeah. and then we can wrap that and then go into mm-hmm. to Reformed uh, Presbyterianism. Yeah. So, Justin, as we're looking at these different things, I think much like you've had to jump in on the behest of Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed Pedobaptists, I've had to do that with Credobaptists as well, because oftentimes they can get misrepresented as just talking about memorialism or just talking about this, that, and the other thing. But for you, um, you, you know, you mentioned that the SBC's Baptist faith and message statement on baptism doesn't talk about sanctification, and it doesn't talk about these other things. It, it talks about symbolism. But what I find interesting even more is what it says it symbolizes. Um, and how would you distinguish Mm -hmm. 1689 baptism, like your Baptist convictions from that statement on the SBC, this one of, uh, it is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in the crucified Lord. Yeah. Well, I'll simply take it from, from Keech's catechism here. He, he, he says it better than I would. He, He, baptism, um, in the Lord's supper, both, uh, are an effectual means of salvation not from any virtue in and of themselves or by those who administer it, but by the blessings of Christ and the working of his spirit in them that receive it by faith. And so, uh, and these are of course different from the other ordinances in that they are specially instituted by Christ uh, to represent and apply the believer's benefits of the new covenant by visible and outward signs. So we're actually being given the benefits of being in the covenant of grace uh, by means of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we do truly believe it is, in fact, a means of, of grace. It's not simply, we're, we're not simply identifying right. with Christ. We're not simply saying, yeah, we, we're, we're burying our old self and coming, coming forth as a new creation. Certainly that, that's like a, a secondary or tertiary part of baptism in, in, in that uh, th- there is some representation there of being dead to oneself and being born again, um, which is why we, we dunk. Um, but also... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also with the engrafting in of the covenant of grace, we're becoming part of the covenant community. We are um, going to come in and receive the benefits of the covenant community. And that's why you and I are so right. close on this. We, we, we're we both believing that you're, you're being grafted into the covenant community. You're, you're getting sealed into the covenant of grace and you are becoming um, part of that covenant. Uh, really the only place that you and I differ is, is to whom that's applied. Right. right? We, and how much water we, we believe use. in different things about what the, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, your, your method is great for a drought, but, uh, <laughs> got him. <laughs> uh, um, and so, and so, we're very, very close on that. We, we, we would both affirm uh, almost the same thing. It's simply when, when we come to how we view the way that the covenants are, how they've been established, the way that they work with the elect throughout history and redemptive history uh, and throughout scripture, we view those so, so differently uh, that there's just no way we can reconcile um, those things. Hold on, I'm getting called. And now it's the Blake Show part two. So we had part one. 
And now it's part two. So I'm going to pull up from the other book. Poor Justin. Actually, no, I'm going to pull from Sproul's Truths We Confess and read his commentary and exposition on the Westminster Confession. So here's from R.C. Sproul's Truths We Confess, page 599, citing from Westminster 29.4, where it's talking about applying the sign of the covenant to the infants of believing ones. Sproul writes, The biggest issue among Christians with respect to baptism has to do with the baptism of infants. It is a vexing question for many people. Christians who practice infant baptism do so because they believe it is what God wants. People who do not practice infant baptism believe that it is displeasing to God. Both sides are trying to please God, but they cannot both be right. It is important to understand that nowhere in the New Testament do we find an explicit command to baptize infants, nor do we find an explicit prohibition of baptizing infants. The cases for and against infant baptism are both built on inferences drawn from the scriptures. Such a situation should always give us pause when we disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an important question, but we should approach it with a spirit of toleration in light of the absence of an explicit biblical mandate. I think that's a beautiful way to put it, and I'm really grateful for Dr. Sproul's insight, his wisdom, and his ability to communicate. And in this particular statement, I think we have it summed up there, right? It is an important question, but we should approach it with a spirit of toleration in light of the absence of an explicit biblical mandate either way, right? So, fellow pedo-baptists, uh, my Presbyterian friends, my Dutch Reformed, my Lutherans, Anglicans, I love you guys too. Um, we need to be in a spirit of toleration towards our Credo-Baptist brethren because just like us, they're seeking to please the Lord. And while we believe them to be in error, they believe us to be in error. And yet there's neither the explicit command nor the explicit prohibition. And so we're all left to using biblical and systematic theology to understand our doctrine of baptism as best as we can. And that's part of why Justin and I get along so well is because covenant theology from a 1689 Federalist view and covenant theology from a Westminsterian view and then you know, by extension, a Dutch Reformed view and the slight differences has far more in common than paedo-baptism from a Lutheran view and definitely more than from a um, Roman Catholic view or from Methodist churches that baptize infants and so on and so forth. So it's important to remember those covenantal views, those strands are critical. I would encourage everyone, go back and listen to episodes 39 and 40, right? Refresh yourself with the covenant theology and the distinctives between Baptists and Presbyterians. And Sproul draws that out here, right? A false sense of security. Because they have been baptized, they may assume they are saved and therefore miss the call to faith upon which the New Testament places such a premium. Baptists think that for such practice, such practical reasons, it is important to delay baptism until a person is of the age of accountability. Also, interestingly, a phrase lacking in the biblical text. When he can understand the teachings of Christ and the content of the gospel and can genuinely repent and embrace the truth of God. But on the flip side, Sproul continues, this is page 600, Truths We Confess. Those who do baptize their infants do so for the following reasons. Even though they see some discontinuity between circumcision and baptism, Continuity is predominant. This again goes back to episode 40. Truman summed this up really well. Baptists posit more discontinuity between old and new. Presbyterians posit more continuity. And that's simplistic, but it's pretty accurate at the same time. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the Old Covenant, and baptism is the sign of the New Covenant, or was the sign of the Old Covenant, and baptism is the sign of the New Covenant. We know for certain that God commanded the sign of the Old Covenant to be given to both adults and to their children. This is an important covenantal precedent which suggests that the sign of the new covenant should also be given to the children of believers. You'll hear this come up again when we get to our Pedo-Baptist episode, and there's other reasons beyond just that inference. I want to make that clear. But that's a really important theological underpinning. We're not doing it because we think that it makes our children saved or that they're de facto Christians. That's not what we're saying. But we do believe that it is a continuity to continue marking the children of believer, uh, you know, there are people who are in the visible covenant community. In Old Testament Israel, it was the Jewish people 
and it was by ethnicity or proselytization. And those people that were in that covenant were marked from birth by circumcision. And so Presbyterians in their covenant theology believe that that continues into baptism. And that's the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians in Reformed circles. Hey, welcome back. I was just spending well, some time, bro. It's oh, been an exciting night for patrons. It has. I was reading uh, like two pages from Sproul's Truths We Confess on the Westminster. But he made a really good point in there that I might actually leave in the actual episode, in the substance of the episode, but we'll see. This is going to be a doozy to edit. Oof. R.I.P. me. Yeah, okay. sorry about it's that. Your, I mean, it is your fault, but it's not your fault, but it is your <laughs> fault, but it's not your fault. Uh, where did we leave off? I forgot. Uh, we were talking about how the difference between uh, Baptist view of uh, baptism versus the memorial slash symbolic. Right. And we were talking about that that statement about uh, you were saying that there is a sen- there are symbolic senses of baptism, but the baptism isn't merely a memorial right. or a symbol. Um, I guess you could pick that thought Precisely. up, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, we're we're yeah we're not merely identifying with Christ. Um, when, when we're not merely doing these things that, that, to to simplify it down to. Um, uh, to something is merely symbolic, uh, really strips it of its of its power and its in its in its purpose, right? Um, and it's really uh, it butchers uh, baptism, and so it's um, I would say in 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 some terms you could even call it a disgrace to the to the ordinance uh, or the sacrament to 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 view it as such, um, and so it's important that we understand the historic, um roots of our of our congregations how how we come to these views and why we believe what we believe about them and really dig into what we believe about the the ordinances that were instituted by God so that we can properly understand them and properly apply them in our lives and so we're not uh, even in ignorance uh, offending God in in um I don't know if I can use this word on the episode but bastardizing such a such a means of grace from from God and use that on our family program. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of families, uh, we're going to go talk about the Westminster <laughs> Confession of Faith. Oh, oh, oh. Um, wow. The family-friendly <laughs> confession. Uh, this is chapter 28, article 1. <laughs> so what does that make? Bap- does that make the Baptist view PG-13? <laughs> yeah, that's... Oh, I mean, if that's when the age of accountability is, bro, I don't know. <laughs> Get out of here with your memorial. Hey. Amen. So uh, all right. So what do Presbyterians believe about baptism? This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, article one, which reads, <laughs> baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Now, a few important distinctions here. The Catholic Catechism teaches errantly that baptism regenerates you. The Westminster Confession is not saying that. The Westminster Confession says, unto him, baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, a sign and a seal of his ingrafting into Christ, a sign and a seal of regeneration, a sign and a seal of the remission of sins. So there's a big difference between saying this this sacramental act regenerates you or generates faith in the moment, and saying this sacramental act is a sign and a seal of this promise. And I was referencing John Fesco's book in the patron section, um, Word, Water, Spirit. But in that, he talks about baptism as judgment. And Truman talked about this in episode 40 a little bit, so go back and, and check that out. But this idea that baptism isn't unmitigated good news. To the, per- to the party that is, uh, and again, I'm speaking specifically from a Reformed Presbyterian view, though I'm sh- sure Reformed Baptists would have some similarity here. But from Reformed Presbyterian view, we're saying as a sacrament, Baptism is a promise. It's a sign and a seal when met with faith of the promise of eternal life. But if it's met with unbelief, it's a sign of judgment. Much like if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you drink judgment upon yourselves. Um, Article 3 of the Westminster says, dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism 
is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling of water upon the person. And Article 4 is the one that where the Baptists are going to really go away from me. Uh, not only those that actually do profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Um, that's what I was reading in uh, our patron section. So you guys that, have, that aren't patrons yet, you might want to head over because I was reading a, a big section from R.C. Sproul's Truths We Confess um, yeah. on this. Well, it, again, this is why it boils down to our, our differences in covenant theology, because uh, from the Presbyterian view, um, you are seeing yes. baptism as essentially a replacement for uh, circumcision in that uh, in this way that circumcision was applied to all who were in the covenant of the covenant community, regardless of um, age, regardless of uh, whether or not they professed faith, right? They were circumcised. If you were a Jew, you were in the covenant community, you were circumcised, uh, assuming you were Jewish. And so similarly, you would say if you're in the Christian community, you're, you're in the church, you're uh, born to Christian parents, therefore you're going to receive the same sign that the Jews would have received as um, as young children. Um, and, and that's different from the Baptist view, which sees the, the covenant as distinct. It's its own uh, new covenant, a truly new covenant with its own individual signs and in, uh, seals and promises and benefits that is distinct from the old covenant and um, the covenant with Israel. So I think he froze again. Oh, no. So as Justin was saying, there's big differences between Baptists and Presbyterians. Unfortunately, Justin's internet cut out due to weather, uh, so he was not able to join me for the remainder of the episode. So I'll do my best to wrap up our final uh, podcast points. As I mentioned, as I mentioned, in the coming weeks, there will be more episodes diving specifically into 1689 Creative Baptist views and Westminsterian Pita Baptist views. So we will get there. But what were the major points of differences, right? You have the, the meaning and the purpose of baptism. And as we already spoke about, 1689 Federalists and Westminsterian Federalists both affirm that it is a sign of the covenant of grace. Now, how we understand that and how we apply that looks very different, but we view it as a covenantal sign, whereas the memorialist view views it as just symbolic and a nice idea and it's symbolizing your, your personal profession of faith if we're getting really up to the contemporary world. Lutheran view, there's faith that's given to the infants in the moment uh, that needs to be nurtured and grown. And the Catholic view is that it's, it frees you of sin. Um, so obviously very different views there, right? I and Justin take a covenantal view. We understand that very differently, but that's a great point of similarity. Um, and then you have the modes of baptism. As I understand it, the Catholic view is is like full-on dunking. Um, Lutherans do sprinkling or pouring and then also accept immersion. Presbyterians, sprinkling or pouring, accept immersion. As far as I can understand, Dutch also sprinkling or pouring, accept immersion. And the Creed of Baptists, immersion only. Um, what we didn't get to, which is unfortunate, but that's all right. We'll highlight these later. The major points of agreement here are between you know Westminsterian covenant theology and 1689 are that we deny baptismal regeneration. And we deny bare memorial that it's this it's this symbol of my pledge to God. Uh, no, it's God's promise to his covenant people. It's a promise of judgment if met with unbelief and a promise of salvation if met with faith. God is the agent in baptism. And we, both 1689 Federalists and Westminsterian Presbyterians, affirm that there's one Lord, one baptism, right? We both deny this idea of getting rebaptized. However, where we differ is that consistent 1689 Federalists would reject covenant pedo baptism because they would say you it wasn't baptism you just got you you know you just got a shower like you you were not immersed and you were a child you couldn't make a, a credible profession of faith therefore this baptism is not a baptism so we're not talking about a new baptism we're talking about your first baptism now as a Presbyterian I disagree with that but I think it's consistent within the system um, there are some creative Baptists who I think are a little bit less consistent, but I appreciate them, who accept Presbyterian infant baptism. Um, but the, the big deal here is they don't allow for a second baptism. That is the, the distinction there. Um, an example is Mark Dever, who will let Ligon Duncan preach at his church at conferences, but won't let him partake of the Lord's table at his church because he was baptized as an infant. 
So he doesn't view his baptism as valid, and so he believes that it would be wrong to administer the Lord's Supper to someone who's not baptized. Which I think, again, consistent, but I think it's inconsistent with the fact that he lets the man preach. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Both are godly men. Both are seeking to honor the Lord and uh, have fellowship. But again, general disagreement or general agreement between Baptists and Presbyterians is that rebaptism is not a good practice. Consistency will vary from person to person individually. And that's a big difference from a lot of evangelicalism that sees people getting baptized at, you know, 15 at a summer camp and then rededicating their life and getting baptized again at 18 or 19 in college and then falling away and then rededicating their life again at 28. Like that's a practice that we would all stand against as saying it's one Lord, one baptism. And it's, you know, baptism is a one time in a life sacrament or an ordinance if you're a 1689er. And it's not something to be repeated. Whereas the Lord's Supper is a continual renewal and reminder uh, and infusion of grace. And I, I'm excited for the, the day that that is uh, a more frequent partaking. Now, for some further reading, go check out the London Baptist Confession at reformstandards.com to read the chapters on baptism. Read Keech's Catechism. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28 on baptism. Read the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms on it. Read the Belgic Confession for a Dutch view. Read Word, Water, Spirit by John Fesco to get a big, dense historical, theological, biblical, theological, systematic, theological understanding um, of baptism broadly, and then specifically of covenant paedobaptism from a Presbyterian perspective. But he does deal in these other terms. I'd also recommend uh, Infant Baptism in the Silence of the New Testament by Brian Hallstrom. Again, these books were recommended in episode 40 of Distilling Theology by Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. Uh, I don't have any Baptist books offhand, but that's okay because in a couple of weeks, uh, after we come back from a brief hiatus, we'll be talking about credo baptism, and Justin and Eric will be able to give us lots of good credo baptist books. So again, we're going to take a couple weeks off because my work schedule is a little bit crazy, and I need to focus there. Um, but when we come back, we'll be talking about credo baptism, and we'll be tasting Ardbeg and Oa. Um, friendly reminder: join us on our social media channels. You know, Instagram and Facebook are the main places. Our Facebook page, where we post updates, our Facebook group for discussion. We love it; it's been awesome. Almost seven hundred members and growing. Also, be sure to check out the Society of Reformed Podcasters at reformedpodcasts.com. We're still proud members. We're grateful to be among such good brethren in the Lord. Also, for those of you listening, if you haven't joined us on Patreon yet, check it out. For the cost of four ninety nine per month, you get exclusive bonus content, early release episodes, uh, discounts in the Distilling Theology store. And uh, in this case of the episode, you can watch Justin's internet dip in and out and uh, me fill the time in between by reading from Sproul's book, Truths We Confess, and John Fesco's book, Word, Water, Spirit, to exposit a little bit more of what Presbyterians mean by paedobaptism because I had to fill the time somehow. So that's what I did. Um, and I'm going to have to do the ending tag by myself. That's so sad. So guys, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God, solely damn glory. Gloria.